Welcome, friends, to this edition of Footsteps of the Messiah. So, uh, we will go ahead and jump into this. We are in the week of Vayera, and Vayera means, and he is seen, or was seen, or will be seen. Uh, the actual verb Vayera is referring to the Lord appearing to Abraham by the turbans of Mamre. And that is Genesis 18. But we are going to jump into the Haftarah portion uh, as we are going to hopefully get through this year a series of uh, entire rotation of the year of Haftarah. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us by his commandments and commands us regarding engagement of Torah study. So, Vayara, the portion of Vayara connects to the Haftarah, which is 2 Kings 4. So, we'll go ahead and talk a little bit about the connection to the Haftarah portion and why this prophet, this section from the prophets, was chosen. So 2 Kings 4, 1 through 37 is read in the Ashkenazic tradition. 2 Kings 4, 1 through 23 is read in the Sephardic tradition. Remember, Haftarah is He, Fe, Tet, Resh, He. It means additional. And we're going to go ahead and read all 37 verses. So I will introduce it and then go ahead and read this section, and you're welcome to read along. I'll be reading reading from the Etz Chaim with commentary, and uh, it is on page 123 if you happen to have an Etz Chaim Humash. All right, so this Haftarah presents two miracles performed by the prophet Elisha, E-L-I-S-H-A, not to be confused with Elijah, J-A-H, or Eliyahu in Hebrew. In the first miracle, Elisha provides a poor widow with oil so that she might redeem her children taken in debt bondage and live on the proceeds of the remainder. That's chapter 4, verse 1 through 7. In the second narrative of this Torah portion, he tells a barren woman that she will give birth to a child as a reward for her charity. Now later, after the child suffers a fatal illness, the prophet restores him to life or resurrects him and that is 2 Kings 4, verses 8 through 37. These wonders are part of a cycle of tales about help and healing that commence with the death of Eliyahu, which was the mid-9th century BCE, and the descent of his spirit upon his disciple Elisha. That's 2 Kings 2, 1 through 15. Now, at first sight, there seems to be little connection between the miracle of food for a debtor widow, detor, D-E-B-T-O-R, widow, and the resurrection of a wealthy woman's son. Yet, the two narratives are intertwined with intriguing and complex relations. Food provides the first point of contact. Its absence in the first text is the reason for the miracle of plenty, and its presence in the second text as charity is the, is the reason for the announcement of the woman's pregnancy and giving birth. Significantly, both narratives include the query, what can I or we do for you? And that comes from chapter 4, verses 2 and 13. And the subsequent fulfillment of a request, 
The second point of connection revolves around the restoration of children. In the first case, children who had been taken away are restored to their mother. In the second, a child given up for dead is restored to life or resurrected. Furthermore, each story uses the same phrase about the enactment of a miracle. In the first, the woman is told to go in and shut the door behind you. Verse 4. In the second account, Elisha himself went into the child's room, actually his own guest room, and shut the door behind the two of them. Verse 33. Such thematic and verbal patterning suggest a close tie between the two tales. They may draw on a cluster of oral, tradition, oral traditions with similar stylistic shaping. Such sharing of motifs within this miracle cycle extends beyond it. By For Elisha repeats actions that had been performed by his teacher, Elijah, in 1 Kings 17, verses 7 through 24. This Haftarah in its present form has the character of an artful narrative. Something like this tale of wonders must have circulated among the prophet's disciples, networked as retold, restyled as reworked, and eventually written down for, hundred, for generations to come. Note, the recounting of Elisha's miraculous deed in 2 Kings 8, verses 4 through 6, similarly, the great deeds of God from the Exodus on were told from mouth to ear as memory and message until the day they were collected and inscribed as sacred scripture for all time. See Exodus 10, verses 1 through 2, Psalm 78, 2 through 8, and also Psalm 106, verse 2. Now, relation of the Haftarah to the Parashah. In the Parashah, Genesis 18, Abraham Avraham at Mamre extends hospitality to three unexpected visitors. Immediately thereafter, he receives the divine promise that at the same season, La Moed, next year, Ka'et Chaya, the barren Sarah will have a child. That's Genesis 18, 14. And there is no statement that this constitutes a reward for hospitality. But in the Haftarah, reward for hospitality is an explicit theme. The wealthy woman of Shunem, who provides food and lodging for Elisha, is rewarded with the announcement that at this season, La Moed Hazeh, next year, Ka'et Chaya, you will be embracing a son. The same two phrases, the same two phrases that we saw in Genesis when Hashem, the Lord, was speaking to Avraham and Sarah. And that's 2 Kings 4 15. All right, so that's all for the introduction. So we'll go ahead and read the commentary from the Etzheim. And the first comment from 2 Kings 4.1 is talking about the verse, A certain woman, the wife of one of the disciples of the prophets, cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know how your servant revered the Lord. And now a creditor is coming to seize my two children as slaves. So the Etzheim commentary says, a certain woman cried out to Elisha. This cry, tsa'aka, denotes an appeal for legal aid. It is used here in the context of a creditor who has seized a widow's children for repayment of a debt. A biblical exhortation warns creditors against keeping debtors' garments as security overnight, noting that compassionate God will come out to the poor person's rescue if such a one cries out. And that word in Hebrew is Yitzhak, to him, not to be confused with Yitzchak, 
which is the name of Isaac. Um, in Hebrew, uh, Abraham's first son. Sorry, Abraham's son after Ishmael. So, if he cries out to the Lord in distress, God will come to the poor person's rescue. And the source of that is Exodus 22, verses 24 through 26. So, Elisha said to her, What can I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? She replied, Your maidservant has nothing at all in the house except a jug of oil. Well, go, he said, borrow vessels outside from all your neighbors, empty vessels, as many as you can, and then go in and shut the door behind you and your vessel and pour oil into all of those vessels, removing each one as it is filled. She went away and shut the door behind her and her children. They kept bringing vessels to her and she kept pouring. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And then he answered her, there are no more vessels. And the oil stopped. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your children can live on the rest. I always wonder if somebody was like in the middle of pouring and the oil just stopped, or if they actually filled up a final vessel, and then that was it. The small vessel that they started with just didn't have any more all of a sudden. I just wonder what that miracle looked like and felt like. And, you know, it, I think it also speaks to us to never stop looking for a way to embrace and continue the miracle. Like if I, w I always wonder what she what would have happened if she had if if the kid had not said there are no more vessels and if she had said, just keep bringing me vessels, just go find the smallest one or the biggest one, no matter what. And he said there are no more so like what what if he had gotten more creative or you know i mean i guess there's a time where you just have to receive the lord's blessing and then that blessing ends and you go on to the next miracle the next blessing in your life but anyway it just uh it's just always been a curious verse for me to, to meditate on and ponder all right so um he said go sell the oil elisha told them go sell the oil and pay your debt and you and your children can live on the rest so god gives them work to do the lord gives them work to do through elisha he says okay i did a miracle but now you do the rest right and you go and sell it and you go and meet your neighbors you go into the community build this business you have everything you need you didn't have to put the capital in yourself you didn't have to fund it you didn't have to uh, you know take out of your savings not, not that she had any but there's she god didn't just write her a check he gave her something that she could go build into a business of her own which i think is pretty amazing you know what would you do right if all of a sudden you woke up one morning and you found a lease for an office that was paid for for 10 years and you you had uh basically uh all expenses paid for to go into an office and sell a product or service that you didn't have to pay for. You had unlimited, you had an unlimited resource to provide to somebody, whether it's a tangible or intangible product or service. Would you go to work and build that business? Would you go to work and immediately realize what you've been given? Would you immediately throw yourself into that endeavor and call it your new career because 
God blessed you with it. Maybe this woman couldn't stand the smell of olive oil. Maybe she didn't want a business selling olive oil. I mean, who knows, right? Who knows what her grand career vision was? I mean, other than raising her kids or, you know, what her husband did for a living, if she was going to try to carry on that business or if she had dreams or aspirations of doing something else. But this is what God gave her. So when the Lord gives you something, especially by way of a miracle, it's wise to recognize it. And I mean, I'm speaking to myself too. It's wise to recognize it and realize, wow, you know what, Lord? My wants, turn my wants into your wants, Lord. Give me the desires of your heart so I can offer mine on the altar. I can offer mine and give them to you and just empty myself of me so I can be more and more and more full of you. So I think it's interesting. And he gives her shemen, oil, which is, you know, the what signifies kingship, what king signifies the Messiah. So he's giving her an abundance of, of shemen, oil. Okay, verse 8. One day Elisha visited Shunem. A wealthy woman lived there, and she urged him to have a meal. Now, whenever, and whenever he passed by, he would stop there for a meal. Once she said to her husband, I am sure it is a holy man of God who comes this way regularly. Let us make a small enclosed upper chamber and place a bed, a table, chair, and lampstand there for him. By the way, lampstand is menorah, a menorah, uh, which is, you know, just a, a candle, candelabra. So that he can stop there wherever he comes Whenever he comes to us. One day he came there, he retired to the upper chamber, and he laid down. He said to his servant Gehazi, uh, let's see if I'm saying that right. I don't remember what, how Gehazi, okay, Gehazi is spelled with a chet, so it's a guttural Gehazi. Uh, Call that Shunammite woman. He called her, and she stood before him. I always thought that was like kind of a, like a crass and like unrefined way to call her. Call that Shunammite woman. Like, I mean, by now, wouldn't he have known her name? I just thought it was, it was always kind of an odd way to refer to her. Uh, but I'm sure there's something I'm missing. Uh, let's see. Tell her you have gone to all this trouble for us. Excuse me. So what can we do for you? Can we speak in your on, in your behalf to the king or to the army commander? She replied, I live among my own people. What then can be done for her? I think she meant like that's not going to do me any good because I'm Jewish. I'm or I'm 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 from Israel, and um, they were under foreign rule at that time. I maybe, and that she's like I, I don't you know talking to the king or commander isn't going to do any good for me. I already have like my own provision. I'm already taken care of. Maybe is what she was saying. Uh, so he says, "What thing can be done for her?" He asked. The fact is, said Gehazi. She has no son, and her husband is old. Call her, Elisha said. He called her, and stood in, and she stood in the doorway. And Elisha said, This season next year you will be embracing a son. Please, my lord, man of God, do not delude your maidservant, she replied. The woman conceived and bore a son at the same season the following year, as Elisha had, occurred, has, had assured her. The child grew up. One day he went out to his father among the reapers. Suddenly he cried to his father, Oh, my head, my head. And he said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. He picked him up and brought him to his mother. 
and the child sat on her lap until noon, and he died. She took him up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and left him and closed the door. Then she called to her husband, Please send me one of the servants and one of the she-asses so I can hurry to the man of God and back. But her husband said, Why are you going to him today? It is neither new moon nor Shabbat. She answered, It's okay. It's all right. She had the ass saddled and said to her servant, Urge the beast on. See that I don't slow down unless I tell you. Okay, going back to verse 16 and 23, commentary says, At this season next year. Now in Hebrew, la moed hazeh ka'et chaya, the phrase translates as next year. In the promise to the barren woman is also used when the pregnancy of Sarah is predicted. The Hebrew may be more literal, more literally rendered, quote, in a living or viable time that is in due course. But he said, why are you doing what? Why are you going to him today? After the woman announces that, in verse 23, she wishes to see the man of God concerning her dead son, 2 Kings 4.22. Her husband asks this question and adds a complaint that is neither new moon nor Shabbat. Presumably, it was on such sacred days that people customarily visited local shrines to consult the man of God on various matters. Based on this passage, rabbinic tradition justified the custom of visiting one's teacher on the new moon or Shabbat. All right. So, just going to go ahead and finish the chapter 25 through 37. So, she went on until she came to the man of God on Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her from afar, he said to his servant, Gehazi, there is that Shunammite woman. Go forward, go, go, hurry toward her and ask her, how are you? How is your husband? How is the child? We are well, she replied. But when she came up to the man of God on mountain, the mountain, she clasped his feet. Gehazi stepped forward to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Didn't I say, Don't mislead me? Now, I just want to stop there. That kind of reminds me of when Yeshua was telling the disciples, the Talmudim, Don't. Don't block the kids from coming to me. Don't block the little children. Because, you know, such is the kingdom of God. And you have to be like a small child to enter the kingdom. So, Elisha appreciated that desperation that she came to him and grabbed onto his foot and wouldn't let go. Alright, verse 29. He said to Gehazi, tie up your skirts. Take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him. And place my staff on the face of the boy. But the boy's mother said, As the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi had gone on before them and had placed the staff on the boy's face. But there was no sound or response. He turned back to meet him and told him, the boy has not awakened. Elisha came into the house, and there was the boy laid out dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door behind him. He went in, shut the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he mounted the bed and placed himself over the child. He put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on its hands as he bent over. Now it doesn't say his; it says its. 
but the Hebrew suffix the uh, enav al enav and vayasem piv al piv and ki kav al kapav and that's hands on hands or palms on palms. Um, it, it says, it, there's a vav at the end, possessive yud, yud vav, meaning his. But it's interesting how they translate it. It's because he's dead. So I don't know if that's why they chose to go with its uh, hands since the kid wasn't alive anymore for that moment. All right. So the body of the child became warm. He stooped, He stepped down. Walked once up and down the room, then mounted and bent over him. Therefore, the boy sneezed seven times. So I always found that interesting. Sneezed seven times. And I don't understand it. But I guess sneezing is like, you know, it's it's uh, breathing in and out very quickly. And I'm sure there's a medical reason why god used why the almighty used that phrase right there and used sneezing but be that as it may elisha called gehazi and said call the shunammite woman and he called her when she came to him he said pick up your son she came and fell at his feet and bowed low to the ground then she picked up her son and left all right and that is the end of the portion that is read on. So that's the end of uh, the Etzheim commentary for Vayera. And that's spelled in English, typically V-A-Y-E-I-R-A. So let's check out Haftorah in a nutshell. So like we said earlier, 2 Kings 4, 1 through 7, 37. And in Judaism, the, in the Jewish reading, they call it Kings 2. Chapter 4, 1 through 37. So, in this week's Torah reading, God promises a child to Abraham and Sarah. Despite childless Sarah's advantage, uh, sorry, advanced age, this week's Haftarah describes a similar incident that occurred many years later. The prophet Elisha assuring an elderly childless woman that she will bear a child. The Haftarah discusses two miracles performed by the prophet Elisha. The first miracle involved... A widow who was heavily in debt, as we just read, and her creditors were threatening to take her two sons as slaves to satisfy the debt. When the prophet asked her what she had in her home, the widow responded that she had nothing but a vial of oil. Elisha told her to gather as many empty containers as possible, borrowing from neighbors and friends as well. She should then pour oil from her vial into the empty containers. She did as commanded and miraculously. The oil continued to flow until the last empty jug was filled. The woman sold the oil for a handsome profit and had enough money to repay her debts and live comfortably. So, the second miracle, Elisha would often pass by the city of Shunam, where he would dine and rest at the home of uh, a certain hospitable couple. This couple even made a special addition to their home, a guest room designed for Elisha's use, when the prophet learned that the couple was childless, he blessed the woman that she should give birth to a child in exactly one year's time. Indeed, one year later, a son was born to the aged couple. A few years later, the son complained of a headache and died shortly thereafter. It must have been a horrible headache. The Shunammite woman laid the lifeless body on the bed in Elisha's designated room and quickly summoned the prophet. 
Alicia turned to the woman. Alicia hurried to the woman's home and radically brought the boy back to life. So uh, we are going to um, look a little bit more into the insights on the overview and bring this to a close. But there's some really interesting insights and extra pieces to this Haftarah if we look into Jewish tradition and history. So let's go over there. Okay, so this is from an article called Haftarah Companion for Vayara. This comes from Chabad. And what we see here on 1 Kings 4, 1 through 37, is that Parashat Vayara tells the story of the miraculous birth of Isaac. Although Abraham and Sarah could not naturally have children, God gave them a child in their deep old age. Reflecting this, the Haftarah recounts a similar miracle which was performed through the prophet Elisha, which we read earlier. Elisha had been the student of Eliyahu, the prophet. Before the ascent of Eliyahu to heaven, Elisha requested of his teacher that he be granted, quote, a double portion of his spirit, of your spirit, direct quote. Excuse me. This was indeed <clears throat> fulfilled, and scripture enumerates twice as many miracles performed by Elisha as by his teacher Eliyahu. Our Haftarah recounts three of these miracles. Scripture records a total of 16 miracles performed by Elisha in contrast to eight performed by Eliyahu. The first miracle involved a widow who was heavily in debt and her creditors were threatening to take her two sons as slaves to satisfy the debt. When Elisha asked her what she had in her home, the widow responded that she had nothing but a vial of oil. Elisha told her to gather as many empty containers as possible. So that's so interesting because she said she had nothing except, instead of saying, oh my gosh, I have a vial of oil. Like, I do have something. Like, not even looking at the lack, it's so hard when we're in dire straits, when we're ben hamitzarim, between the straits, and uh, there's even a season for that in the heat of the summer between uh, Tammuz 17 and Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. So we see that she's in a season of of machsor, uh, of lacking, of uh, despair, famine, personal famine, and it's a it's a picture. It's symbolic of spiritual famine as well. But she still had the oil, and I think this might be part of what Yeshua is quoting when he said when he talks about the the ten virgins with. Um, oil vessels and keeping the the lamps full so that's in i believe matthew 25 5 uh, let's see let's go there for a second matthew 25 so i wasn't thinking i would talk about this but it's just something that kind of came up as we were reading there so let's look at that for a second okay matthew 25 verse 1 at that time the kingdom of heaven the malchut shemaim will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Let's take a look at the complete Jewish Bible translation, which I like a bit better, more accurate. The kingdom of, than the NIV, the kingdom of heaven at that time will be like 10 bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were sensible. The foolish ones took lamps with them, but no oil. 
whereas the others took flasks of oil with their lamps. So simple common sense lesson here on how to be prepared, how to be prepared physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually for your day, right? Especially for a big event. Um, to be prayed up, prayered up, however you want to put it, and to ask God for the anointing and ask God for direction. Ask God for, for even what you should take on something as simple as a, an important meeting or a picnic or you know whatever. Not to mention uh, the, the greater things that we do for God directly, like you know, uh, taking our family to services or preparing for Shabbat or a, big, or a high holiday or a you know, major holiday. Five of them were foolish and five were sensible. The foolish ones took lamps with them, but no oil, whereas the others took flasks of oil with their lamps. Now the groom was late, so they all went to sleep. It was the middle of the night when they when the cry rang out. So the cry rang out. That is actually temple language because there is a temple crier, and it's called the cock crow. Uh, the the word for rooster was mistranslated, and the temple crier is who Yeshua was prophesying to Peter, for instance, to Shimon, to say before the the such and such. Uh, calls three times, you're going to betray me. Well, there was no poultry allowed in Jerusalem. The the temple, the laws and the the maintenance of Jerusalem and the temple didn't allow for, there was no poultry allowed. Um, I think basically because chickens make a mess and they, uh, although they're a clean bird, they were not allowed to have chicken coops in in the city and the confines uh, because of the temple and its regulations so we can do a podcast on that and i can get you a source on that but that is from a very well a verifiable source and so it was the middle of the night when the cry rang out the bridegroom is here go out to meet him the girls all woke up and prepared the lamps for lighting the foolish ones said to the sensible ones give us no please just demanding entitlement Give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both you and us. Go to the oil dealers and buy some for yourselves. But as they were going off to buy, I mean, who's going to be open in the middle of the night to sell oil? But as they were going off to buy, the groom came. Those who were ready went with him to the wedding festival, the wedding supper, and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came. Sir, sir, they cried, let us in. But he answered, indeed, I tell you, I do not know you. So stay alert because you know neither the day nor the hour. All right. So uh, that is, let's see, from Matthew. Okay, so I think I said verse 25, but no, it's just Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Okay, back to the Haftarah companion. So the woman, the widow, would sell the oil for a handsome profit and have, oh, let me go back. I skipped a couple of lines. She should pour Elisha instructed her to gather as many empty containers as possible. She should then pour oil from her vial into the empty containers. Now, empty containers are symbolic of people, her neighbors, her community. So take the little oil you have and you pour it into other people. You make converts. You edify them. You evangelize to them. You speak to them about Hashem. You exalt the name of the Almighty. HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Okay, so you're God's advertising agent. All right, so that's... Uh, one of the symbols here. She did as commanded. So it said Elisha told her 
Okay, now I need to look at the Hebrew, which I can do in a second. But it says he told her, but then it says she did as commanded. So I believe she saw this as, and of course, you know, he's a prophet, uh, uh, Navi. So she saw this as something that the Lord spoke to her directly to do um, through the, the hand, by the hand or by the mouth of Elisha. Okay, so let's go over to the Hebrew, which I had already closed. Okay, how's your day going? Well, I hope it's going great, whether it's morning, noon, or night. I hope you're doing something edifying. I hope this is bringing you blessing. Okay. Vayera, Haftara, Vayera, Haftarat, Vayera. Okay. By the way, Vayera goes all the way through Genesis 22-21, which includes the famous portion, the Akedah, about the binding of Isaac. Akedah means binding, by the way. All right, so... He says, um, four, Uvaat Vasagart Hadelit. Go in or come, come and close the door behind you and your children. Uvaad Banaich and only your kids. Vayatsakta and poor oil implied alcohol hakelim it just says pour upon all of your vessels so that could be you know symbolic of the kids too ha'ele all of these vessels those vessels vahamale fill them tasi'i and removing each one as it is filled hebrew is so beautiful because sometimes you can say something in one word that takes like four or five in english she went away and shut the door behind her and her children. Vaitelech meito vatisko hadelet baada uvaad banecha hem magishim elecha. She went away and shut the door behind her and her children. So she did exactly what he told her to do. Okay, so. Lechi, and he tells her, just like uh, he told, uh, God told Abraham last week, Lechecha, he tells her, Lechi Sha'ali Lach, except, so it's Lechi Lach, which is the female command version, instead of Lechecha, he tells her Lechi Lach, only he puts Sha'ali in between Lechi Lach, meaning walk, ask yourself, ask to yourself or for yourself. So the translation here is go and borrow vessels outside. But in Hebrew, I, maybe there's a modern Hebrew word for borrow. But here it's ask for, ask for yourself. Kelim min hachutz, from outside. Me'et ko shcheinaich, from all of your neighbors, those who dwell around you. Okay, so moving back to the article. The woman would sell, or she did his command, and miraculously, miraculously the oil continued to flow until the last empty jug was filled. The woman would sell the oil for a handsome profit and have enough money to repay her debts and live comfortably. The second miracle, Elisha would often pass by the city of Shunem, where he would dine and rest at the home of a certain hospitable couple. This couple even built a special addition to their home, a guest room designed for Elisha's use. When the prophet learned the couple was childless, he blessed her the wife, that she should give birth to a child in exactly one year's time, and indeed one year later, a son was born to the aged couple. The third miracle, a few years later, 
This miraculously born son complained of a headache and died shortly after. The Shunammite woman laid the lifeless body on the bed in Elisha's de designated room. Okay. One moment. Okay, friends. Shunammite woman laid the lifeless body on the bed in Elisha's designated room and quickly made her way to the prophet. Elisha came to the woman's home, miraculously brought the boy back to life, resurrected him. Who were the women and the two sons? Um, the, so the first, going back to the first miracle. The Tagum, which is uh, Aramaic for translation, um, an exposition of the Torah. So the word means translation, but in, it's an Aramaic translation, an exposition of the Torah. Uh, the authoritative Targum on the prophets is that of Yonatan ben Uziel, a student of the sage Hillel. So, the Targum, as well as other Midrashic sources, tell the backstory to this story. Background to this story. During the reign of King Ahab, his wife Jezebel was viciously hunting down all the prophets of God and putting them to death. At this time, Eliyahu, the great prophet of that era, had decreed a famine on the region until the king and his people would mend their wicked ways. The manager of Ahab's palace was a righteous man named Obadiah. Obadiah. Uh, our sages identify him as the biblical prophet Ovadiah, and we read his book as the Haftarah of Vaishlach. Okay, during this time, Ovadiah hid 100 prophets in two caves and took full responsibility for sustaining them. To this end, he borrowed sizable sums of money, ironically, from Yahoram, the son of Ahab. The money was lent to him with interest. Although, as the manager of the palace, he could have taken provisions from there to feed the prophets, Ovadiah refrained from doing so, as much of Ahab's wealth was gained illegitimately. It was after Ovadia's passing that his wife came to Elisha begging for help as Jehoram was about to take Jehoram, J-E-H-O-R-A-M, the king. Uh, let me tell you who that is real quick in the footnote. Uh, oh, it doesn't. Hold on. Jehoram. Okay, let's see. A little bit more information about Jehoram. Oh, wow, that's a lot. Okay. Son of King Ahab and Jezebel, brother and successor of King Ahaziah, reigned from 718 to 705 BCE, joining forces with King Jehoshaphat of Yehuda and the vassal king of Edom to fight King Mesha of Moab and was miraculously successful. During his reign, Israelites suffered a seven-year drought during which the Aramites constantly attacked Israel. While Yoram was recovering from injuries, he sustained in battle against Aram. His general, Yehu, revolted, killing the king together with the rest of Ahab's descendants as Eliyahu and Elisha had previously prophesied. He's also the eldest son of King Jehoshaphat. Or there is a Yoram, I guess. This is saying a different Yoram. Eldest son of King Jehoshaphat. He killed his brothers. No, I take it back. Let's see. King. Okay, join forces with King Jehoshaphat. So then there's a part B here. So let me just read it. I'm not sure who this is referring to, but I think it's somebody different. Or maybe a different Yehoram. So, the eldest son of King Jehoshaphat, colon, he killed his brothers to secure his sovereignty. Uh, let's see. But earlier it said he was the son of King Ahab. So I don't want to confuse you, as I am currently unclear. So, he killed his brothers to secure his sovereignty, reigned from 714 to 706 BCE. Influenced by his wicked wife, Atalia, the daughter of Jezebel, he introduced idolatry into Yehuda. The Edomites revolted against Judea, and Yoram failed to subdue them. As Eliyahu the prophet predicted, the Philistines and Arabians also revolted, plundering Yoram's palace and capturing members of the royal household. Yoram died from an incurable stomach disease. So it looks here like 
there are two Yorams, and they go by one is Yehoram and one also Yoram, or possibly it's the same person, so I apologize. Um, that is beyond the scope of what I am going, I'm prepared to talk about, so let's go back to the article, and that will be something to study another time. All right, so the, where was I? Okay, although as the manager of the palace, he could have taken provisions, but much of Ahab's wealth, Ahab's wealth was gained legitimately. Okay, so um, his wife went to Elisha begging for help, and Yohoram was about to take her two children as slaves. The Zohar tells us that Ovadia's wife had visited the grave of her husband and desperately cried over the situation. In response, Ovadia on high visited the three forefathers, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, who told him to advise his wife that she should visit the prophet Elisha and he would help her. Okay, so I don't get into that kind of like practice because it says that it's against the Torah to talk to the dead or summon the dead. So to me, praying for gra praying at grave sites is more about exalting God and asking God to remind you of the greatness of this person's life. It's not to communicate with that person to ask them for forgiveness because they're gone. They're in Ghani Den. They've already forgiven you if there's something you need to be forgiven for. And they should be forgiven because now they're in a place of truth, God willing, they're on high waiting to be resurrected if they're a believer in Yeshua, God willing. And um, that is what we read here about what happened in the Zohar. It's fine to read that stuff once in a while, but you want to be careful that it correlates, it corroborates. It is, it coincides. It, it It is supported by Torah, and that practice is not, it's actually prohibited by the Torah. So, Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me what you have in the house. So, as we know, she said, I have nothing at all in the house except a vial of oil. In this interesting exchange, Elisha is looking for, was looking for something that the woman already had upon which a miracle could take effect. This idea can be linked to a concept that constantly recurs in Torah and Jewish life. If something spiritual is to affect the physical, it needs to be anchored in something physical. A foundation of ancient Jewish teaching is that our world is a physical expression of godly realities, or worlds, plural, as they are referred to. Anything that exists or occurs in this world is because there is something within godly reality that creates its existence or occurrence. A miracle in the physical realm indicates that a godly presence has come forth in an unlimited way, breaking through all limitations and the usual order in the supernal realm, thus breaking the order in the natural world as well. Yet the converse is not true. Not necessarily does everything in the spiritual realms percolate down into the material one. There can possibly be a, there can be a possibility that a divine revelation, such as a blessing, may remain in that realm and not take on a physical manifestation. It's interesting. Listen to that. There can be a possibility that a divine revelation, such as a blessing, may remain in that realm and not take on physical manifestation. This is the concept behind many biblical stories and events where the prophet was told or sought on his own to do something physical, carrying a spiritual vision, blessing or miracle, blessing, a miracle, blessing, Sorry, to do something physical to carry the spiritual vision, blessing, or miracle into the physical world, thus setting in motion the physical play out of this godly reality. Many Jewish laws and customs also follow this idea. All right, one moment. All right, number one. 